Well, sometimes when things go wrong, we ask the question, is that God's will? As humans, one of the things that we get, uh, I think a lot of us, nervous about is first impressions. You meet a new person, especially if it's someone that you're, uh, you know, it's a lot of expectations, someone that's important, you know, first day, you know, job interview, whatever it might be. And, and, and you're, you're trying to put forth your best self. And, and, and in doing so, you're really not being fully true to yourself. And, and you don't really know that person. They don't really know you. But we get nervous. Juxtapose that with, you know, uh, hanging out with people you've known for years, for decades. People who, you know, your spouse, your best friends, your family, you're just comfortable around them. You can be yourself. They know you and, and you know them. That you, you know, in some sense, you, you know what they're thinking, what their, their, their mind is, is like. You can even read their mind in that certain moment, seemingly. What would it be like to be that way with God? What would it be like to know God's mind, to know his will in every moment of every day? Uh, this idea of knowing God's mind, his purposes, it's, it's probably one of the things that, that in my experience personally and also when I have conversations with Christians, it's one of the things that, that they wrestle with the most of asking, you know, what is God's will for my life? Am I in God's will? How do I know what God's will is and how do I live it out in my life? You see, discerning God's will can be difficult and, and, and here's one big reason why. God's will is usually clear just not specific. Let me explain that for a minute. For example, in the Word of God, it makes uh, you know, lots of things clear about His will, that, that you love God and love people. You shall have no other gods before me, that you, uh, He loves a cheerful giver, that, that you're called to follow Him. But, but they aren't always specific. How Am I supposed to love God and my neighbor? What does that look like in daily life? What is the specific will for these specific moments? What, what gods am I supposed to avoid? What does that look like practically in my life? I'm, I'm down to give whatever, but, but how much and to whom and how often? I'll follow you anywhere, but first I need to know where you're going, what you're up to. And that is the question of, of what is God's will and how can we partner with him in that. The truth is, this morning, that I hope to encourage you with is that it is possible to know and experience God's will for your life and for the world around you, that as disciples, it's one of the, 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 the gifts, the blessings that we are given to, to be able to know God and his will for our lives, that it's not as complicated as we oftentimes make it. And we're going to dive into our text today. If you want to uh, turn with me to Acts 16. This is where we're going to dive into to a story that in many ways is all about the will of God in uh, our lives and specifically in the lives of Paul. 
Last week we, we learned about uh, some, some, some Jewish people who were, were putting up fences to salvation, putting up fences to relationship with Jesus. And we kind of, we, we, we learn we need to be in the posture of, of digging our wells on the living water who is Jesus Christ, that we should not be excluding people or keeping people out, but inviting people in to be in, in his presence and to, to know the, 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 the living, powerful, loving God revealed in Jesus. And that's kind of where we pick up this week, at least sort of. There's actually a five-year gap between the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16. It's actually officially considered the, the start of Paul's second missionary journey. And at the beginning of this passage, we read a familiar name, probably for some of us, because there's two books named after him. Uh, Timothy joins. Paul's like, hey, Timothy, come along. Be my disciple. Be my apprentice. I'm going to show you how this thing is done. And they set off. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysiae, they tried into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysiae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so just a, a real quick note, you might notice that in verse uh, 8 and before, you have this, the, the, the narrator, the, the author, saying they were doing this thing. But then in verse 10, it shifts to, to the first person, the we and the us. And so we've picked up another companion. It seems like Luke has joined the journey in this region, this missionary journey. And you also probably noticed a lot of, of, of places that, you know, are kind of hard to pronounce. And I probably stumbled over them a little bit. That They're going all these different places and they're getting shut down by, by none other than the Holy Spirit. What is that about? Let's, let's take a look at that. First, they're kept from preaching the word in the province of Asia. This is, this is Western, modern Western Turkey. And it's actually where the towns of Ephesus and Laodicea were. The Spirit said, hey, no, this is, this is not where you're, you're going. And what does that mean? What did that look like? We're, we're really not sure. I don't know if it was a voice uh, from God or a prophetic, you know, a word from someone or, or a vision or, or maybe just a bad, they had a bad feeling about that. Uh, so, so, so they moved on. But, but, but the point is that, that that door was closed. And so they move on to, to another province uh, between uh, Phrygia and Galatia. They kind of come up and they go to the border of Mycenae, a third province, enter, uh, try to enter Bithynia, which is one of the northern provinces in, in the region. And, but they're, again, redirected by the spirit of Jesus is what we read. So what, again, what is going on? They pass through that area and they end up in Troas, which is the, the northwestern tip of the region by the sea. And it seems like they were at the end of the road, uh, literally. They, they, they knew what their calling was, to plant churches, to preach the gospel. They, they wanted to go to all these influential sea, uh, cities like Ephesus, but they ended up in, in Troas. It wasn't just a little detour. This was there's hundreds of miles along the way, which means extra weeks on the road that they weren't necessarily prepared for. And, and by the way, when they end up in, in Troas, this is actually back in the province of Asia, which is the very place they were told not to preach the word. What is going on? Imagine the confusion, the discouragement. How do you think they heard the no's from the Holy 
spirit. It was probably a trying time for Paul and Silas's new missionary relationship. For, for Timothy and Luke to join, they're probably like, man, these old fogies, they don't seem to know what they're doing. Like, I'm starting to doubt the fact that I joined them on this journey. There's just been door after door shutting. And I'm sure there was some doubt, some discouragement. You see, sometimes God's will doesn't make sense to us in the moment. A lot of times, actually. We don't always have a gauge on what he's up to. Nothing seems to make sense. We wonder, even in in the most extreme moments, if God has left us, if he has forsaken us. Have you ever found yourself at the end of a road, a dead end, a roadblock? I had the, the privilege of spending uh, a couple of days in Israel this summer with my wife and some awesome people, and we, we, we toured the Holy Land. It was just an incredible experience, but, but uh, when you go to Israel and you tour, you're in this, this massive bus, and, and people drive crazy, and there's really tight spaces, so you're really just, you know, our bus driver would joke around about how, like, you know, I teach people to pray when I drive because everyone's praying that, you know, you don't hit everyone else on the road, which is, you know, true definitely at times. It's incredible. But, but, but we were, were going, and towards the end of our trip, it was time to go back to Jerusalem. And so each time we would, we would shift hotels and we'd get everyone on the, on the bus and then, and then go to another region. And, and, and what's important, uh, something to know, is that sadly, tragically, we had several people who got COVID. And so we were, we were taking everyone in, in, into Jerusalem. Jerusalem and the, the people with COVID hat were, were sitting at the back. And so we're, we're coming up on Jerusalem. And another thing to know is that there are, there are military, military checkpoints throughout Israel and especially around Jerusalem. So we come up to this military checkpoint and, and they let most people go through. So we weren't really worrying about it. We'd been through a couple other ones. And but sure enough, we get stopped. We get stopped. And we're like, oh, no, this is not good. So we, we got Israeli military personnel coming on board, you know, fully locked and loaded, uh, fully automatic weapons. It was, you know, a pretty tense moment because even if this goes well, we're going to be, you know, set behind because they're like, hey, get out your IDs, get out all your stuff. We need to search everything. That's what's going to need to happen here. And our, our, our bus driver, Ahmad, he, he, was just, he said this quick phrase in, in Arabic. And I, I, can, I can say, I, I don't think I've ever seen a military person move so quickly, all of them, just off the bus. And we're like, oh, man, that's what a relief. But Ahmad, what, do you, what, do you, what did you say to them? It's like, well, I just said, welcome on board to our bus. We have tons of COVID if you would like to search it. And, uh, and so we got a good laugh out of that. And, 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 but it's just, I mean, it's a minor thing, and it's definitely wish those people wouldn't have gotten COVID. But who knows what would have happened? We might have been you know, delayed by hours or maybe even prevented from going to Jerusalem that whole day or if, if we, that wouldn't have happened. And so it's just these, these crazy things. Sometimes we don't, we don't always see the way out, but, but it comes out of nowhere. And this is kind of what we see in this story happen with Paul and those who are with him. At Troas, at the end of the road, where they're like, where else can, should we go? Can we go, Lord? You shut us down in every other area. He's given a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come, help us. And so they go. And they, they sail across the ocean to Mas- the region of Macedonia. You see, Paul w- w- was, ha- and, and the people, were, they were looking to reach cities in the region, but God had a bigger picture. He wanted to reach the entire continent. And it was through the patience, the diligence, the faithfulness of these men that, that they went through the disappointment and the discouragement and the, the confusion they pushed through towards faithfulness. And they were led into this new region. You see, God guides us 
by closed doors just as much as open ones. He's always working all things for good, even when it seems like he's absent. So when we come to closed doors, there are many times that God is guiding us into something deeper. And we're going to see here that this is true, that it leads them to the, the, the region of Macedonia, which where Philippi is, the place of Philippi. And it's going to encounter a, a mission partner that will change the course of, of so many ministry impacts throughout the rest of Acts and the New Testament. And, and not only that, but the doors that had been closed, like Ephesus, they'll go back. And Timothy will be left there and plant the church there and flourish. But it just wasn't time for that. Yet. And so if you're, if you're ever in the place of just, I don't know what God's will is in my life, you feel like you're hitting door, uh, closed door after closed door, it might be time to just faithfully move on, to step on, to say, God, what do you have for me? And trusting that if that door was meant for you, that he will bring you back to it in his time. And so we read on in verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. The next day we went to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. We stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and she and the members of her household were baptized. She invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So we finally see where all the wanderings lead to this this city of Philippi, to this woman named Lydia. And this is an an odd choice because Philippi was a Roman city. It didn't have a lot of God-fearers. There was no Jewish synagogue. And the way you you would start a synagogue is you had to at least have 10 God-fearing men to start up a synagogue. And they didn't have that. So that's probably why these ladies were worshiping outside the city by the river because they didn't have leadership and there wasn't any other thing. And so so Lydia's like, "I, I... I can lead you guys in this, you know, but I, you know, I kind of know what I'm doing. But what do we do whenever the things we're used to, what's normal, the normal ways of doing things, like being in a synagogue, are not there? Lydia kind of took it into her own hands, and this is where we find her. Why did God lead them to Philippi? For this woman who would change the course of the missionary journeys of Paul. Not only did she have the gift of leadership, but she was also wealthy. She was a businesswoman. She sold purple cloth. And so just a quick, awesome, fun fact that I was like, yes, this is such a cool fact. It took almost 8,000 mollusks, mollusks, to produce one gram of purple dye in the ancient world. 8,000 mollusks for one gram of purple dye. So it's crazy, hard work, lots of diving, you know, getting all the, and then the process, that's why she was so wealthy. You know, no wonder that her and others had so much wealth. And so I guess you could say that Lydia worked out a lot because she had a lot of muscles. Huh? Yeah. Muscles, mollusks, okay. I tried. Um, but in all seriousness, imagine that 
You have this woman, you, you desire to follow God, that he's gifted you with, with leadership, with, with wealth, but there's, there's no synagogue, and, and you, you have people who are wanting to follow uh, God with you, but, but you know, you're just kind of lost, and, and, and then the spirit comes to you in the person of Paul, and you hear the message, and it says that the Lord opens her heart to heed the things that are spoken, and all of a sudden, we see Lydia know what the will of God is for her life to serve him, to follow Jesus. And so at the waterside, there's a watershed moment for this woman. And the important thing isn't necessarily how she responds, but simply that she does respond, that she responds to follow, choose to follow Jesus, setting the trajectory and the direction of the rest of her life. Have you ever gotten the wrong directions to somewhere, either from your, your, you know, your Apple Maps, your Google, and then you get super frustrated. It's like, man, I trusted this thing, and it took me the wrong direction. It happens to me all the time. I get so frustrated. I'm like, man, who, who designed this? And I forget, you know, okay, we should be thankful for this. But, but going the wrong direction... Finding yourself lost, especially when you don't expect to be, is one of the, the most discombobulating things you can experience, frustrating things that you can experience. And that's what our fear is when it comes to the will of God in our lives. We're afraid of going the wrong direction, of finding ourselves outside of this thing called the will of God. But I don't think this is a fear that we should cling to because I think it's rooted in a misunderstanding of who God is and what his will actually means for us. You see that God's will is more of a compass than it is a map. More of a compass than a map. It's, it's the difference between viewing his will as a journey, as an adventure towards a specific destination with God versus a strict blueprint that you have to follow through the T or else you're out. It is the with God journey in the direction of his will, not the blueprint that everyone must follow to a T or else hell, death, etc. And really, underneath all of this is asking the question, what is my next right thing? What is my next act of obedience? What is the next step of following God's will on this journey called faith? And, and one of the best things we can do is, is ask with Lydia, what, we start with what have we been given? What have we been given? You see, Lydia knew her, her gift. She had, she had lived out faithfully this, this gift of leadership when there was no space for it. She knew her abilities, her passions. She had a, a personality, an experience that brought her to that moment that she, she had all these resources. She's like, I'm ready. I just need a place to direct it. And so the moment she knows that she's to follow Jesus, she redirects all of that towards God. And that is the will of God for her life. And that's how it works with us, that we, 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 we follow God's will by, by being faithful with what we have been given, our giftings, our passions, our abilities, our experiences, their invitations to more deeply live into the will of God. And, and, and in this, we can get easily distracted from that reality. And so we need to ask the important question that is, how important is God's will compared to blank? Financial comfort a fun schedule, meaningful job, romance, success, health, the lives of our children. How important is God's will compared to these things? It's not that these things are bad, but when we direct our attention to those and not to the presence and the will of God in our lives, then 
Should we expect to know what God's will is when we're caught up in so many other things? To experience the will of God, we must value it. More importantly, we must value it more than these other things. And so how can we know and experience God's will? Is it something like the continual closed doors, the beginning of Paul's missionary journey? Is it the strange visions that led them to Macedonia? Is it the the open hearts of people like Lydia that that we meet and guide us in a certain direction? If God's will is like a compass, then how can we know which way is north? How can we live in such a way to always be headed in the direction of the kingdom? And I would argue that it starts with this, Jesus says in John seven seventeen that anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Romans 12 says to test and approve God's perfect will. We learn the will of God by practicing the will of God, by being obedient to the will of God. It's something We need to be willing to say, I I know what the obvious things are of the will of God in my life. We're always looking for the specific things. But it's in the obvious things that we are led into the unknown. In the obvious, we become the kind of people who can be in the will of God in the unknown. In the things that come in the darkness of the valleys, in the dark nights. In other words, it's really more about who we walk with than where we are. The obedience in that journey, the direction of our lives rather than the specific actions. So if we learn to practice and obey, here's two vital reminders I, I want to just ground us in today, not rocket science, but so crucial when it comes to what does it look like to live into the will of God in our lives. The first is this, that experiencing God's will begins with seeking Jesus. Again, how is it that we get to know someone over time? We spend time with them. We start to... Our thoughts become their thoughts. That, you know, you, the first Christmas or birthday you spend with someone, it's like, I have no idea what you want. Tell me. But over the years, you start to know, and you don't have to ask anymore. And it's the same thing with Jesus, that it starts with the person of Jesus, that it's ultimately more about knowing a person than, than living into an abstract set of ideals for us to follow. And, of course, one of the best ways Arguably the best way to know the will of God is to seek him in scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God, breathe and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We spend time with the written word to know God's will. To rephrase that, we, we are in Scripture with God so that we might know and live out his word and be transformed by him. It's not just about knowing head knowledge. It's also about doing obedience, practice, living it out. And it's not just coming to the written word, but also experiencing relationship with the living word. Jesus confronts the Pharisees in John 5 saying, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
But the scriptures testify to me, yet you refuse to come to me for life. You see, without the spirit and the presence of Christ in this book, it's empty. We must see it as living, as active, as a way of engaging relationally with the God of the universe. If we come to the written word without seeking the living word, then we're missing the point, And we will, at times, be easily led into a life that's not wise. So we must seek the written and the living word. It's less about where we walk and who we are walking with. And that is the truth when we talk about Jesus, but it's also true of our second point. That God's will is best experienced with others. We were not made to be alone. We were not made to walk alone. There's, uh, you know, in recent years, there's been these things, emotional support animals, which I think is really cool that, you know, animals can, you know, God's creation can help walk with someone who's having a hard time with anxiety, depression, whatever. But in the last couple of weeks, there's a new emotional support animal named Wally that has popped up, and he is an emotional support alligator. Pretty crazy. Apparently, he loves giving hugs. But there's a dude up in Philly who, who has him on a leash, and that's his emotional support. Kind of crazy, but... But it just reminds us we're, we need things, animals, but, but more importantly, people to walk alongside us, to help us discern. And I would argue that we, we cannot know the fullness of God's will apart from people. In fact, Lydia could not know God's will until Paul came and preached the gospel to her. And so the people who have, who have led us to where we are introduced us to Jesus, but also the ones who walk alongside us, helping us discern daily obedience with him. We cannot do this alone. And so that's what we see at the end of Acts. In in, uh, Acts 16, verse 40, we see this. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, which is a completely different story that I would recommend you reading on your own this week, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. And and I just, everything we know about Lydia in this story, I guarantee that they weren't just going there to just encourage those believers, that the believers were coming to them and say, hey, you're doing a great job. How can we support you? What do you need financially? How can we send you out and, 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 and empower you in, in the will of God and your calling and your mission here in this region? And, and that's, that's what would have happened in that home. Kind of gets back to this idea we've been talking about in recent weeks, this idea of helpful accountability that we're, 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 we're championing, we're, we're encouraging, we're spurring people on towards good works, towards God's will, towards the life that brings flourishing. And so if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this, that if you are seeking Jesus in community with others, whether you realize it or not, you are already headed in the direction of God's will. You probably don't need to be asking, worrying, being anxious, am I in God's will? If you are seeking Jesus and you are in community, you are already in his will. And so where does that leave us this morning? There's an incredible book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. And it's, it's really just a fictional story that kind of creatively 
gets behind the curtain of spiritual conflict and the things that are going on behind the scenes. And in it, Lewis depicts uh, two demons, one affectionately called Uncle Screwtape. And he's writing to a lesser demon, a younger demon who doesn't know the ways of, of, of helping uh, people he calls, Jesus followers, who he calls the enemy, the followers of the enemy, helping this younger demon get these followers of the enemy off track into disobedience outside of the will of God, getting them to doubt the presence of God in their lives, all this kind of thing. And so he's mentoring this younger demon. And in one of the more uh, poignant passages in the entire book, he says this, he's, he's warning Wormwood, the younger demon, hey, this is what you need to work, look out for because we can't do anything about this. He says this, our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe where it seems that God has vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and yet still obeys. It is the person who, like Jesus, looks around and even though he doesn't want to, doesn't feel like it, even though he's in the dark night, the, the valley where he can't feel God's presence, he still is faithful and walks in obedience, does the things he knows to do, does the things she knows to do, that, that we walk towards God in spite of our circumstances, that that is the will of God. And when we are willing to take those steps, when we are willing to say, Lord, I don't feel you and I don't see you and I don't even want to follow you, but I'm going to do it anyway, that is when the enemy can no longer do anything and the kingdom of darkness is vanquished in our lives. And not just in our lives, but in the world. And so the question for us this morning, today, tomorrow, when you wake up, are you willing to walk in obedience of what you know to be true, in spite of what you feel and experience as something different? Are you willing to trust the God who walks with us even when you don't see him, even when the doors are slammed shut in your face, even when you're at the end of the road? Will you step into obedience? Will you walk the journey of faith with Jesus? If you do, God will do incredible things in your life, the life of this church.